the Tea Health Show, medical lifestyle show. Good morning. This is the Tea Health Show, and I am Chris Avon Smith, and in studio, obviously, is Dr. Mark. And Mark, we have got a fantastic guest back in the studio with us today. Yes. So for you that caught our little social media blurb, today we're talking about the role of the ombudsman in aesthetics, reconstructive and plastic surgery. So welcome Dr. Chris Snayman, renowned plastic and reconstructive surgeon here in Johannesburg. Chris, good morning. Good morning, Doc. Good morning, Chris. Thanks very much for having me once again. So nice to have you back. Yeah, always love our sessions. So, Chris, the last time that we had you here, we spoke about rhinoplasties. Mm-hmm. And um, today, actually, uh, we, we're going to talk about your role as the ombudsman. And we need to get the definition of that ombudsman. Mm-hmm. So we're going to go there. Of a prasa. And maybe just give us... A process definition. A process is the Association for Plastic and Reconstructive Surgeons of South Africa. Am I correct? Something like that. Yeah, the Association of Plastic, Reconstructive and Aesthetic Surgeons um, of Southern Africa. Quite a unique group or body or um, system that is in place in this country. So, you know, how it all works is that if one looks at the training of plastic surgeons in this country, the um, requirements to qualify as a plastic surgeon and then to be recognized by the fraternity as someone of good standing um, is a process. Okay, so can I, can I interject? Mm. When you say plastic surgery... Most of the people immediately go botched. They think that's what plastic surgeons do. So aren't those more television show botched? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Aren't those more aesthetic plastic surgeons? Tell us actually what plastic and reconstructive surgery entails, because you know what we think about it facelifts. Uh, butt lifts, those kind of things, but actually it's reconstruction of noses, reconstruction of ears, um, reconstruction of breasts, etc., etc. So give us a little no. bit, a better definition, I think, of just what it is that you guys as plastic and reconstructive surgeons actually do. Okay. So I think, you know, traditionally the word plastic implies that we are using materials. Um, and that's all that plastic surgeons do is we put in stuff, we take out stuff. That's certainly not what it's all about. You know, the, the basic philosophy behind plastic surgery, the word plasticos means deformable, malleable, moldable, uh, reformable. That is exactly what we do. So very little of our work involves extraneous material. Okay, so it's basically using what we have in the human body, manipulating it, moving it, molding it, recreating something with it. Okay, so um, your words like botched, etc., instill quite a, a little flutter in me because every single patient that comes in, 
has that association. Sure. Yeah. yeah plastic yeah. surgery yeah. is aesthetic, aesthetic surgery and aesthetic surgery done badly. Yeah. So if one looks at it, the plastic surgeon is probably one of the most consummate surgeons in medicine. Why? Because we deal with everything from the big toe all the way through the body to the middle cranial fossa. Okay, so when you talk middle cranial fossa, I have a rough idea of where it is. But middle cranial fossa for a lot of people is completely French. Absolutely. So what I'm trying to say is is that we deal with every single part of the body. Plastic surgeons get involved. Head to toe. Head to toe. Yeah. Yeah. With nothing must out in between. Yeah. So there's a very good reason as to, you know, why, um, number one, it's the longest speciality because you have to know everything. So Um, when you say longest speciality, you guys do general surgery first. Well, you do internship first. Yeah. Then your community service. Then um, the sort of paths can take varying directions. But the basic requirement is that you have to have been exposed to most forms of surgery. Mm-hmm. So that's a, what's called a senior house officer rotation. Right. Mm-hmm. During which time uh, you pass or write the first of your specialist exams. That's your anatomy, physiology, pathology. Okay, so that's your primary exam. That then qualifies you to do your time in general surgery, which is usually a minimum of 18 months of general surgical time. So now we are already on three and a half years? Post, yeah, post Post, post post, grad. Yeah, post grad, three and a half years. Yeah, during that time... You have to pass the second part of your specialist exams, which are the intermediates. So with time and that examination, you are now eligible to apply for a post in plastic surgery. Uh Aha. So you you can only start plastic surgery roundabout in your third to fourth year of of surgery specialization. That's right. Okay. Okay. Um, If you're lucky enough to get a post then you have to do a minimum of four years in a recognized teaching institution um, in, the, you know, in this country. So basically, your specialization post-graduating as a medical doctor yes. is seven years. Pretty much. So you're looking yeah, at about 14 years in total, if you're lucky. So 14 years after school. No, it's After longer school. than that. It's probably about 16 with a new community service community two years serving. added. Yeah. So, you know, you've, you've, you've got to be dedicated to this. The problem is, is that, I only did 12. you know, plastic surgery by and large is, is a bit of a well-guarded secret. You know, you don't get too much exposure to it. Mm. From an undergraduate level You get no exposure to it from an undergraduate level Yeah I mean what always surprises me with uh, Plastic surgery in, in, in and of itself is, is the specialist work you have to do The vascular work you have to do The minute of, of the work you have to do And I mean that's pure You've got to know exactly what, you, what you're doing And you'll find motor skills and all of that it, It's something you can't just walk in one day and start doing Absolutely. There's a reason plastic or reconstructive surgeons Are some of the highest paid um, oh, that, Members of a medical yeah. fraternity yeah. Am I correct? Because the amount of knowledge and work that you have to do Again, you know what, when, when we specialize, aesthetic medicine, for instance, I'm a aesthetic practitioner, my knowledge of the 
facial anatomy and facial physiology is quite good. Um, You're you know what? Uh, anatomists uh, know the body, but they don't know the physiology. As a, mm. a, a surgeon, you usually specialize as a cardiothoracic surgeon, which means you only work on the chest. Or a gastroenterology uh, surgeon, you only uh, mm. focus on abdominal. But you guys have every part. Uh, okay. So, um, you know, back, back to your sort of original question is that aesthetic or cosmetic surgery in the general scheme of things is actually a very small proportion of what we actually do in terms of the reconstruction etc etc mm, mm. i'm sort of of the of the opinion of the contention that you cannot be an adequate aesthetic or cosmetic surgeon if you don't know how to be a reconstructive surgeon no I, so I, you have I, to understand I, the abnormal yeah in terms of trying to reconstruct right. the normal, absolutely, and, and so, I believe in that. So it 100%. takes time. It's a, you know, it's you don't just walk out um, post your examination, your final fellowship examination, and open up a cosmetic practice. It doesn't work like that. Mm. Which then highlights, all right, the sort of great, um, what is the word? The 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 flaws in our training mm. here in in South Africa because. There's a workload in the government hospitals, in the, teaching, in the teaching institutions, yeah. Yeah. Um, which is predominantly reconstructive in nature. And not aesthetic. Absolutely. Okay. So, you, you know, formal training in aesthetic surgery usually occurs outside of the formal teaching institutions. Absolutely. This is, this is why you guys go and do fellowships. Fellowships, mentorships. Yeah. Um, so, Chris, I want to I want to touch on a subject that which we've discussed on this uh, platform and on this show, and that's emotional beauty. And I think if we if we stop there for a second and e examine that, um, it's going to fit in with your role as what the ombudsman actually does. So. Aesthetic beauty, in my opinion, and help me or give me yours, is the emotional response that a face invokes in me as the observer, as well as in me, the person who is looking at my own face in the mirror. And very often, most often, actually, the emotion between the observer and me as the one looking in the mirror is incongruent with one another. So a patient that walks into my office, I see as they look tired um, or they look pissed off because of a frown between the, the eyes uh, or bags under the eyes and they see something completely different and I think one of the biggest dilemmas that we face as 
doctors in aesthetic medicine, whether it's uh, aesthetic uh, injectables like what I do and aesthetic surgery, is understanding a patient's expectations of what they think our procedures can give them and what we know we can achieve through our treatments or surgeries. And this is becoming an increasingly difficult and, in my mind, neglected speciality, identifying your patient's needs and absolutely understanding them. What is your thoughts on that emotional beauty? Because this is what you deal with as an aesthetic surgeon most of the time. It's not so much something that you deal with in reconstruction, but in aesthetic surgery. Yeah, Mark, I mean, I think that's an incredibly important topic. And I think this is where uh, there's such a parallel between your speciality and my speciality. Why? Because what does it boil down to? It boils down to a number of factors here. What is possible, what is probable, what is practical, and how you're going to prepare the patient for that. So number one, communication, communication, communication. I think whichever way you assess a patient, whichever way I assess a patient, um, what we are perceiving and what is being told to us is often a, dis, a disconnect, a disconcordance. Yeah, absolutely. So, you, you know, um, by the same token, it, it all boils down to one's skill set as well. So, you know, I think within probably about two minutes of interacting with a patient, you're getting snapshots all the time. You're focusing, you're scanning, you're listening, um, and you're thinking, okay, how, where, what, what can I do? If you're not listening to the patient, you're going to miss the hotties. You're going to miss the actual um, the prompts. Mm. I call them bids. Okay, mm. so you know, you a patient will come and think, oh, this is this is this is easy, man. I can see a frown. I can see um, an asymmetry of the brow. I can see this, that, this, that, and you're already starting to formulate a treatment plan. Why? Because. We have a need to intervene. We have a need to help. We have a need to change, better, improve, alter. Point of the matter is this, is that when I teach plastic surgery, I sort of break it down into percentages. The surgery or the intervention in your sort of part is the easy bit. It accounts for maybe 10% of holistic patient management. So what does that mean? It means that 90% of our work is basically psychology. That's not to say oh, yeah, that, these, that these patients are dilly and they have issues. It's choosing the right procedure for the right patient at the right time. And I think besides your clinical skill set, hmm. the psychological skill set that we as aesthetic practitioners um, need to have is completely undervalued and in most younger people that come into our industry something that's sorely lacking 
Um, you're a trainer. Uh, you train in reconstructive and aesthetic surgery. I myself am are, are a trainer or is a trainer. Um, and my skill set is not training beginners, not at all. My skill set is taking advanced injectors, people that have been injecting for 10, 15 years, and making them look at a face and listen to a patient differently than they have. And that is something that comes with many, many years of experience. Look, I mean, I think intuition um, is a very, very difficult thing to teach. You, you can't. You I, know, I, I, um, I don't believe you can. And I think, you know, a lot of us only learn by our mistakes, recognizing the mistakes, recognizing when you've missed it, you've missed mm. missed the boat on that on that patient. As sharp as you think you are, um, oftentimes you will you will know, miss those bids. Mm. I think back to emotional beauty versus physical beauty. I mean, obviously, these concepts have changed over the years. Absolutely. And why is that? Well, because of the likes of botched, because of the massive media exposure that happens on a, you know, on a daily basis. Times sort of Kardashian. Absolutely. You know, the times before it was an actress. Yes. You know, an Audrey Hepburn, a Sophia, um, etc. Those were the classic tenets of of beauty. Um, you know, Vanity Fair, etc. Those were when you were seeing these individuals. And to this day, we don't really know what they had done because I've never admitted to it. Exactly. But you know, but Chris, because there was a stigma. And now this, there's there's not. That's but the whole and thing. now let's, yeah. Let's let's stand out for me. The fact that you said that is so relevant. So I refer I always refer my patients to this woman, Joan Collins. Yes. She is eighty seven. If you look at her today and you look at her when she was in her twenties, thirties, forties, fifties, sixties, seventies, it's exactly the same person. Mm. Nothing has changed. The shape of a face is exactly the same. The volume of a face is exactly the same. There's some lines, there's some wrinkles, but you know what? Who at the age of 80 look like a tight bladder skin that's been pulled over sure. some rotting offal? <laughs> but look at, uh, and I, I'm going to, I'm going to refer you to go and Google, I hate Google, but Go and Google a picture of Sher, her 93-year-old mother, and her 68-year-old sister. And tell me that Sher has changed in the past 40 years. She hasn't. So what are they getting right? Well, I mean, I don't know if, if it is what are they getting right is... As opposed to what are we getting wrong? Mm, that's Bravo. Yeah. Uh, okay, because, you know, the whole concept of aging naturally, etc., etc., well, then we'd oh, be crap. out of business, wouldn't we? Crap. I don't believe in aging uh, Absolutely. So, therefore, um, you know, what is our model? What is our benchmark? What is our matrix when we are assessing patients? 
Okay. okay. So, so let's close, go there. So let's, let's, go. so let's talk about assessing the patient. Yeah. You know, I've done joint consults with you. I love it. I learn. Um, I listen because I see things slightly differently. You know, um, but I mean, having having said that, you must have some kind of blueprint in your mind that you are trying to get the patient towards more congruency between classic tenets, anthropometric, anthropomorphic measurements, um, you know, balance, divine proportion, balance. Et, balance. you know, etc. But that's not a paint-by-numbers kind of scenario. No, and unfortunately in what we do, we are taught cookie-cutter paint-by-numbers. 100%. 1.1, 1, 1, 2, 0. 3. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you, you know, yeah. this amount of stuff injected here is going to give you this, this, that. Is it congruent with that patient? Okay. No, it's uh, okay. All right. So, particularly, for instance, as it pertains to something like facial rejuvenative surgery, all right, um, the big difference between what happens here, Europe, as opposed to some parts of the United States, is that there's rejuvenation versus face altering. Okay. Face altering is now starting to move a patient. To a perceived perfect outcome This is one of the Kardashians The one that you can't recognize anymore Which was the big tall one? Chloe, oh, Chloe yeah. no, I was looking at Kim's backside But I mean that's another story <laughs> Not something that I would ascribe to But anyway That, that would take a long, that would take a long that's time a, to look that's at a It's a large yeah. one So you know Let's take something like lips mm. For instance You know Referring back to our classical beauties their lips are nothing like what we perceive to be aesthetically beautiful, aesthetically perfect. That Clara Bow lip mm. from the 50s, yeah. for example. You, you know, um, so the, you know, there are times when I find it quite difficult to say, okay, this is my canvas. Let's be honest, this is, this is art. It is art. You know, the face is the canvas, the skin is the mat, for want of a better word, you know, and... By combining whatever we do, we're then starting to create, please God, a masterpiece. Oh, oh my God. Yes. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, there, therein lies the problem. So back to um, physical beauty. I don't think that one size fits all. Let's take someone like a Julia Roberts. If you start to assess her with all those proportions... For me, independently, they are out. Absolutely, you know her mouth is too big. Exactly, um, her eyes too small for the mouth, and so is the nose. Okay, but if you put it all together, it's it a works. very, very attractive yeah. sort of, sort of, sort of, sort of picture. The other so, one that I like to refer to, and maybe you can interject here, Angelina Jolie. Beautiful, her, a phenomenally gorgeous but, woman. But if you look at the lips, um, absolutely in what is classical beauty, completely, completely um, off offset. Mm. So, right. um, yeah. so what do you do, Mark, when a new patient comes in and they've usually done a real self or uh, an exhaustive search? 
and saying, Doc, I want to look like, I want lips like this. You know it's doable. I know it's doable. Um, what if you don't like Angelina Jolie's lips? You know what, this is where it becomes very difficult. And this is where I wanted to circle back to. And thank you for bringing us back there. And this is where the problem comes in. The patient think when they look in the mirror and picture Angelina's Jolie lips on a very round or a very oval face that it will look gorgeous. The only reason Angelina Jolie can get away with her lips is because she's got the jaw of a man. She's got a strong, very strong jaw, yeah. She's got the squarest, strongest jawline of any woman that I've had the pleasure of meeting, and I've met her. Um, You are blown away by just how prominent the angle of the jaw actually is. And no woman has that. And therefore, it's so incredibly difficult to make this patient understand that yes I can give you those lips but it will make you look like Mrs. Potato Head (laughs) with lips and you know what um, Chris what, what, what I do in my practice and my old patients and I mean patients that walked a path with me hate it when I say no mm. and for a patient a new patient that walks into my office for measurement I say no they're incredibly offended and I refuse to do a treatment I say to them go and think about it I've given you the information this is the reason why this will not work etc etc very 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 few of them Come back but then I, And this is the problem That we have In your field As a plastic and reconstructive surgeon Post-surgery uh, yeah. And your role As ombudsman. the ombudsman So we've say, circled back, back Beautifully here So yeah. Tell us about A patient comes And they've had A procedure done On the face or on the boobs They had a certain Outcome in mind And let's for Arguments say We Think it's a good as a practitioner And I often had this I thought to myself oh my god this is such a great result And two days later the patient Walks back into my office and say to me I, You didn't look at me I look hideous and I thought to myself What? Um, And the patient doesn't see the result And then we have to go back to photos And try and explain Mm. to them the result But this is a phenomenal outcome And the patient still don't see it And in the patient's mind The treatment failed And then they become litigious That's your role So Talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I, I think you've you've touched on a, on a, on a number of things. So, before we even get to, you know, the role of the ombudsman, let's talk a little bit about patient management, patient 
um, expectations and how we go about that, you know. So I think you'll also find in, in, in your practice that patients are quite well educated. They've done a lot of research. And invariably, they are hedging their bets. So you might well only be the second, third, or even fourth consultation. Yeah. Okay. So number one, there's a red flag here. Yeah. Uh, okay. So um, the whole basis of history taking, all right, is to try and ascertain what are the aims, what are the goals, Okay, what is this patient actually after? Is it realistic? Is it unrealistic? Managing the expectations. Now, I d- you know, photography is absolutely vital. Okay, the beauty of aesthetic surgery is that there are some incredibly good um, computer morphing programs that a lot of us make use of. Why? Because I can assess a patient and very quickly I've got a, a very clear graphic mm. in my mind. As it's to a, what I, I expect I just the want, outcome I just to be. want to tell people that is a gift. It's not a skill. It's a it's gift. A gift yeah. Okay, so let's take something like breast implant surgery. You know, I can very quickly one will get an idea. This size, this placement, this is how it should look. Okay, this might be completely disconcordant with what the patient is expecting. Okay, how to get that graphic across to the patient. So, you know, prior to this, what did we do? We put in sizes, we put in um, little fillets, we got patients to fill their bras with, um, you know, bird seed uh, in stockings, this kind of thing. These days, we can use, you know, make use of three dimensional imaging. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. it's not exact, but it gives a better visual, a better graphic. Okay, um, so and, and, you know, it's a very useful tool. Same with noses, same with eyes. Okay, I know that there are volumizing programs out there. Okay, yeah, I, I, I that, don't find that they work. I have to be honest. Yeah, so it's not a guarantee. It's not a guarantee, but it's sometimes it's to display the magnitude of the change. It's also a very good reference point. Mm, mm. So. If one looks at the dissatisfied or the unhappy patient, I mean, let's let's look at it in general. There are four possible outcomes. After surgery. Post-procedure. Yeah. Best outcome, happy patient, happy doctor. Easy. Off we go. All right? Which is very rare because patients like to have a little bit of a moan. I'm very happy, but... Okay. The next best outcome is unhappy patient, unhappy surgeon or practitioner. So no-brainer, the decision is made. We've got to rectify this. Sure. Okay. It's the two in between where we run into trouble. I, I have to be honest. I actually think we run into trouble with the last one that you said. Um, you and I have been in this industry. For, you have obviously been in this industry a lot Longer than I have, therefore the, the less less hair I colour mine. So <laughs> subtle, subtle, but I got it. Um, we but, know somebody who can help with that. You. But there, there, there is still, and especially amongst the younger members of our fraternity, a lot of ego. I this is not my fault, or I, uh, no, this is. It's all good. So, uh, 
Yeah. All right. Okay. Well, so yeah, the, the yeah, middle we'll two, Chris. Yeah. So the middle two, mm. um, obviously, you know, the most difficult one is unhappy patient. Happy doctor. And you think I'm a genius. <laughs> exactly as you alluded to earlier. You look at you think, you look so gorgeous. This and, and like, why aren't you being grateful for what I've done? Mm. And they're seeing something completely different. Mm. So you understand we are on the defensive a lot of the time. I mean, 99% of us, I believe, are risk averse. Every day of our lives, we are managing risks, aren't we? People do not understand exactly yeah. how big the risks are. Absolutely. That we, that we take by just doing a, a, a the most basic of botulinum toxin procedures. Absolutely. In your mind, you're thinking, if I inject here and it spreads and it does this, how am I going to get him or her through through this? Yeah. Okay. Obviously, then the fourth one, all right, which is a happy patient, but an unhappy practitioner. I could Explain have done that one. I could have done better. I expected more from this. Uh, yeah, okay, I've um, had that. You know, yeah. do do I've you keep that. quiet? Do you mention it to the patient, um, or do you just you know wait? It's a very very difficult scenario. That, that's a hard. That's I think probably one of the hardest things yeah. to work with. You so know, I mean, my face is not a blank canvas. Yes, I just want to say to you. So patients will, will, will immediately pick up see it very quickly. That yeah. okay, doc? What are you seeing? Yeah. I have it as well. Double, I get a double smile on my face when you take those bandages off and you shriek. <laughs> well, no, no, no. Yeah. It's just there's a, there's, nah, no, it's a, there's a kind of vacant expression that we have yeah. instead of a slight little smile grin or a smile. Yeah, my well, patient see it immediately. It's an energy anyway. Yeah. You'll pick yeah. up on the energy. Yeah. So you know there, there is. The, so let's sort of get back to the basics of this. You know, there's kind of this perception out there. Um, us against them. Now, 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 what do I mean by that? Well, everybody's going to say that the, the uh, doctors, doctors always stick, stick together. together yeah. Absolutely. You know. you know, he botched me. Yeah. You know, I mean, you must have seen it, Mark. People come in. I went to so and so, and he or she botched me. I mean, I can have a fit. Yes. Okay. Why? Because I don't understand the interaction that occurred. I don't understand what actually happened. But yeah. it's highly unlikely, if not inconceivable, that the aforementioned individual woke up that, that morning and said, my angel, today is your day. That I'm going to mess you this up. This is my chance of botching you. Yeah. My sole intent of waking up this morning of doing that. Yeah. You know, it doesn't work like that. Yeah, yeah exactly. You so, know what, I, I think one of the things, Chris, uh, patients give doctors the blame. And 99% of the time, it's because they do not follow post-procedure mm -hmm. instructions and protocols. All the infections I've seen, all the... To, not all A lot of the things that happen Is because a patient Do not Adhere To post-procedure they've, they've done the yeah. But you know I mean Therein lies the whole crux of this How to manage The dissatisfied patient Because whilst you want to say I told you so Have a look at the informed consent I warned you mm. 
Okay. The patient it doesn't is, help. The patient is vulnerable. The yeah. patient is combative. The patient is dissatisfied. Who's going to take the blame? They're not going to take ownership of it. No, mm. of course. Mm. Okay, so it's how you manage that situation. How, having said that, it all boils down to the pre-procedure, pre-operative preparation. Um, you and I there, I think, um, you're a surgeon, so your pre-operative um, protocols are much lengthier than ours. In my practice, patients come in, I want this and I want this and I want this. Um, I want Botox and I want filler and I want lips and I want this all at the same time. New pa- patient that walked into my practice, my old ones now know. We know. Don't, don't even ask. I never do toxin and filler on the same day. Mm. Never. Why not? Because it gives me a time to get the patient to listen to what we've discussed because I do a full facial and you've seen my assessments my facial assessment is making the patient understand where the anatomical shortcomings are that is resulting in what we identify as the cause of the emotional beauty state and I Always correct it step by step so that the patient understands what we're doing. It's changed how patients come back and say to me, but this is not what I've wanted. This is not what I asked for. It's that understanding process. And I think yours is the same. Um, if, If my patients don't allow me to educate I do not fully comprehend their expectations and they do not comprehend my outcome that I can give them. Therefore, if the two do not marry, we have a failed procedure, even if it was the best one I've ever done in my life. According to the patient, and this is what you as the ombudsman deal with, this was not what I wanted. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I think you've highlighted a lot of things. You've said I often, I want, I need, I must have, uh, you know, you have to give this to me. There's an immediate gratification kind of thing here. Mm. Now, less principled, less scrupulous um, amongst us, it's all about conversion. Mm. All right, you're setting yourself up. So I think that I mean, I'm very glad to hear um, how you sort of metering your, uh, your, your, your treatments. From an aesthetic point of view, we know that patients will only retain 15% of the information at the first consultation. Sure. So I can say categorically it's very rare, if ever, that I operate after one consult. I only charge for one consultation, but that's establishing the touchy-feely. Are we going to get on? Mm. That is vital. If it's we're a gonna, journey you go going Absolutely. On. Yeah. If we're going to have a relationship, this is the way it's going to work. Because, as I said, the technical aspect, theoretically, is the easy part. Mm. It's managing the befores and the afters. So it's only at the second consult 
um, when we then really start getting into the minutiae, the nitty-gritty and the, the proper preparation. So you've identified the perceived or real anatomical uh, problem. You have identified the solution to that problem. Now it's what is it going to take? Yes. Okay. And sometimes even third, fourth, or fifth consultations. Mm. Vital. Because back to the whole ombudsman thing, okay, invariably when a disgruntled patient arrives, they will say, he or she never told me about this. They never prepared me for this. Now, is this true? Did you listen? Whatever. Okay. But that is the usually the initial thing. I wasn't told about this. He never said. So it's back to that whole establishing that that relationship. Um, Some of our colleagues have consent forms that are as thick as a textbook. Mm. I have a consent form that's two pages long. And you have to initial after each paragraph. Yeah. Do you know how long it takes the majority of my patients to sign my consent form? Seconds. Exactly. Are they reading People it? don't read. No, of course exactly. not. Exactly. No, of so course they won't. You know what, and then it does in the last paragraph, I have given informed consent and was given the opportunity to have all my questions answered in a language that I understand. Fair enough. I mean, the patient signed it. Yeah, we've got. We, yeah, we've all no got, idea no. what they've just signed. Exactly. So we've all got these these things in place. God forbid it ever proceeds to litigation. All right, it sounds very accusatory. Yes, and very defensive from a medical practitioner's point of view to say, you signed it, you read it, you've acknowledged it, and you know, so therefore, I'm not culpable. Yes. Okay. That doesn't work. Whilst whilst on a purely legal basis, it holds water. Um, you know, from an emotional and psychological point of view, it's not that strong. Not at all. So, you know, the, the the sort of current feeling now amongst, you know, preventative uh, medical legal practitioners is to get the patient to be more active in their decision-making process. Absolutely. So, you know what, there's, there's something that I think patients need to understand. When there's two routes of litigation, am I correct? You have the legal one and then the one where you report a doctor to uh, the council, the health professions council. And what people don't understand is that when you have been reported to the medical council, you are judged not by the law and not by... People in the street, you are judged by your peers. Not even necessary. Listen, this is a this is a hot topic and something that I feel quite passionate about. But these are not your peers. Well, I mean, if you've done sixteen years of of, of speciality, no. 
Well, you know, you will it's, be it's, judged it's, by people who's done the same speciality. Am I correct, Chris? Not necessarily. Yeah, I was just going to say. Okay, so ah, okay. You, I see so, where so you're you going. Get reported, we spoke about this earlier. You get reported to the ombudsman of the HPCSA. That's not you. That's not me. So that's an individual with no specialist training whatsoever who is who has to, by law, respond to a complaint. Yes. Okay. But uh, let's just then say the ombudsman is an arbitrator. Yes. Okay. And is your finding final? I mean, the, the ombudsman? No. Okay. No. So, I mean… He's responsible for arbitration, not judgment. No. So you know, let's let's sort of take it where where it is, as it pertains to South Africa and plastic surgery, South mm. Africa, because this is unique. Okay, because by sheer virtue of the fact of what we do, we are open to complaint. Sure. Now, as you and I have discussed before, you can't necessarily bemoan the loss of your appendix when you were on death's door and your surgeon with an appendicitis had to take yeah. it out. Yeah. How, how, okay. If you're having your nose changed to make yourself more beautiful, then okay. the opposite happens. Abs- absolutely. Or the perception of the opposite sure. happens. Sure. And it's usually, and this is, Chris, you, you made that so understated, but it's so incredibly important. It's the patient's perception. Right. And a lot of the times I find perception is not driven by the patient. Okay. It's driven by a spouse, a family member. It can be one throwaway comment. Yeah. You know. Oh, um, look, here comes Miss Piggy. Yeah. Because she's had her nose done. That's it. You know, that changed it. So, I mean, how does, how does the ombudsman system work? Okay. Mm. So, I mean, by definition, an ombudsman is an individual who has been um, approached, elected, selected traditionally by a governing body or in our case an association okay to represent the association obviously of adequate knowledge um, honesty and good standing good faith within the community sure to mediate okay and hopefully provide an unbiased um, opinion in order to Resolve issues between both parties. This has to be the most awful job in the world. You, you, you mentioned that because I think from a patient perspective, um, they always perceive the person who's uh, uh, in the medical fraternity as being biased towards the doctor. Exactly. Mm. Okay. okay. So, you know, I mean, so wh- you know, what's the sort of classical uh, train of, of, of events here? All right. A disgruntled individual will make contact with the Association of Plastic Surgeons. Okay. Right. So I'm the chief ombudsman, but we have regional ombudsmen um, who will usually deal with it first. It can then escalate to me um, or it can come directly to me. Right. Okay. At this stage, I don't know who the offending practitioner is, um, and the onus is upon me, and this is a service that we provide free of charge, okay, to engage with the patient and to get as complete and as full a history and, and, and chain of events pertaining to that case and to get a bit of a feel as to what's going on. Sure. 
I can state at this juncture that it is extremely rare for there to be a case of true surgical negligence. Okay? Such is the training of surgeons in this country and the metering system for plastic surgery that is very rare mm. to have a totally botched, for want of a better word, operation. Right. So if that is the pinnacle, if that is the worst case scenario, we've got to work back from that. So once again, the truly botched case is easy. Yes. Yeah. You've got the facts. You can see it. There it is. Boom. This is a cock up. It's no good. Sure. What are we going to do? Okay. It's all the ones before that. He said, she said, he promised, he didn't warn me. And you've got to put this all, all, all together and get, you know, a very good picture. The point of the matter is this, is that we all have opinions. We all have a certain skill set. Mm. The trick is to say, what is the standard? Has this individual, this surgeon, performed an adequate standard operation? So, you know what, I think in that lies your difficulty. Yeah. The quality of reconstructive and plastic surgery in South Africa is on par with Brazil, Spain, UAE. We are far better than, listen to it, we are far better than the Americans. Quite a broad statement, but I think we're a lot more conservative. Um, that's and a nice way of putting it, yeah. The, the perception, again, perception of the patient, the expectation of the patient through social media, through media, TV, magazines is so distorted that it's 99% unachievable. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so what was I sort of, sort of alluding to there? Um, I think you were alluding to the fact that now the patient said he didn't do this. Yeah, okay. And we... Yeah, what is an acceptable standard? have to convince this patient, but... The standard is great. Absolutely. So, you know, the point is, I might have a variation or I might not understand a colleague's variation. Sure. But I can't judge. Okay. Is the outcome acceptable from a purely surgical perspective? Did you execute what you said you would? Yeah. So there's negligence out of, out of, out of play. All right. Did you not listen to the patient and put in an inadequate size implant? Did you counsel the patient, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera? So, so, so is that, that ethics you're talking about uh, uh, to, to an extent here? I, I don't know if ethics is really the, mm. you, you know, the right term. Um, okay. But, you know, if you are going to be bombastic and say, no, man, you mad? This is what you need. Right. Okay. Now we're starting to get a, you know, a little bit of a disconnect there. Your, your mechanic says you need a turbocharge and you, you just want a 1300. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So what, you know, you, very soon or early on in that sort of, sort of consultation, you'll get a gist 
of what has happened. Okay. And invariably, I mean, it's one of two scenarios. Okay. Unrealistic expectations or the practitioner being dismissive. Mm. Okay. You know, which can happen. Let's Listen, face it. you can oh, have no, a no, bad, no, you can have often. a bad day. You think, my liver, what do I have to talk to this patient today? Or she's here again, or it's a bad vibe. Mm. So this boils down to you know the rule of A's, name and rule of A's. You know, you got to be available. You got to be affable. You got to be authentic, even when you're having your, your worst day. Sure. Listen, talk, presence, communicate. You know, if indeed you are in trouble. Or there's the perception that something, call a friend. It's vital to have colleagues. You can't do this on your own. And you know, Mark, it's a lonely, lonely place out there. I, I uh, just in scary. In full disclaimer. Um, I treated a patient a week ago and I just asked Dr. Sneeman, oops, um, you know what? Uh, the Botox went a little bit far to one side. How do I fix this? So yes, Chris, absolutely. Yeah. If you, if you, if you think you're an island in what we do, yeah. you will be isolated. And you know what? Islands eventually get, um, and, and also I suppose uh, it's infallible, you know, I mean, it's, 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 well, it's if, if you and feel infallible. To, to an extent, and if you feel you've done it so many times, and you, you know, there's all the of well, well, I mean, this, this, this is, is the greatest. Thing. This is the greatest leveler because patients will also put you on a pedestal. Of course, you know, Mrs. So and So, whatever. How'd you come by me? Ah, oh, you are the best. Yeah. I heard my friends told me that immediately. You, you know, there's this ego a bit vibe. Of arrogance. You, you know what I'm saying? So to try and deflate that. You just Ta- need one a- complication. Exactly. So I always say, you know, if things are going smoothly, you're either heading out of a complication or a difficult situation or, or the next one's it. coming. Yeah. So it's, it's very nice, but you're only as good as your last you're case. Between the swells. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? It's very interesting. Um, it's a numbers game. Yeah. The more you do... Absolutely. The higher the risk of a complication. Sure. It, it's it, going you know to what? happen. It's, it's, it's a number. It, it really no. is. It will happen to all of us. <coughs> it has happened to all of us. Absolutely. And it will happen to all of us again. So therein lies the thing is that when you are teaching, when you are interacting, etc., Mark, and someone says, well, oh, that's never happened to me. <laughs> there are two things. Either you're lying or you haven't done enough. It is coming. And you know what? In, in my work as an aesthetic practitioner and aesthetic injector, when we have a complication, a lot of the times our patients don't come back to us, but to go to someone else. And they love So you it. sometimes don't know exactly that you've had a mistake. Okay. So, Dr. Sneeman, as the ombudsman, you mentioned that you get hold of the South African Association for, or the Association for Plastic and Reconstructive Surgeons of South Africa, a PRASA. Um, you, how do we, how do we, if we have something that I just want a second opinion, am I being mad or not? Is this in the realm of what the ombudsman do? Not really. I mean, ours is more, uh, to resolve issues with disgruntled patients. Okay, so this is, I have approached my, the, the surgeon I or the doctor. I have a breakdown in communication. Um, and now you know what, we can't agree, yeah. that's when we call you. Yeah. Okay. Having, so, said, you know, having said that, just briefly, 
most of us, particularly in this town and in Cape Town, etc., you'll have a group of trusted colleagues. This is not a band of brothers. Someone that you will trust to give an honest opinion. Right. Unhappy patient, I'm terribly sorry. I understand your, your, your issues. Would you mind if I asked another colleague to have a look at you? Perfect. That's okay. a very good thing. Patients love that. They feel loved. They feel cared for. And this is it. And you've got to hope that your second opinion is honest and is brave enough to talk to you about it. Okay. So, Dr. Snayman, thank you very much. Um, we will take this up. Chris, we back next week. Nine myths of menopause. Oh, lovely. Can't wait for that. Have a great week, everybody. And Dr. Snayman, always a pleasure. And we'll see you all soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for having me. Yeah. This has been the Tea Health Show with Dr. Mark and Chris Haven-Smith, sponsored by the Tea Clinic. For more information, contact admin at theteaclinic.com.